0: Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Daniel Cohen, a PhD chemical biologist working at a small biotech startup that's developing a new generation of antibiotics and anti-cancer drugs. He's also an expectant father and the owner of a very dumb but lovable dog. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you so
1: much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: I am excited uh, to have you here as well, and um, you are uh, part of my ongoing outreach to STEM fields, I guess is what I'm going (laughs) to officially call it. Uh, And my apologies, too. I saw the word chem earlier, and I said, you're a chemist,
1: and I see now you're a chemical biologist.
0: And I bet those two things are different, huh?
1: Well, chemical biology is one of these fields where if you ask 100 chemical biologists, you'll get 101 definitions of what the field is. So some of us call ourselves chemists, some of us call ourselves biologists. We're pretty flexible. So I
0: I appreciate that the sort of premise of chemical biology
1: is the same thing as like, what is Judaism? Right. It just it's entirely dependent on who you ask.
0: Yeah. Just like everyone has their own answer and we'd love to tell you about it.
1: That's that's 100% true. That is 100% true.
0: That is very exciting. Uh, I, I know as little about chemical biology as I do about chemistry. So again, <laughs> I'm just excited to um, have, you know, the, the more scientists on the show, the better. Um, it, listeners may remember that a while back, I sort of realized that, you know, I, I had a lot of um, professors and, and various like scholars from the humanities on the show because, That's a lot of the people that I know. But I was like, I don't have enough chemists. I don't know anything about chemistry. We need their expertise. And so I'm wondering, you know, according to your own definition of chemical biology, if there's any sort of uh, relevant principle that you'll be bringing to bear in your answers today.
1: Well, I mean, I think the closest to a consensus definition of of chemical biology that we have is um, using the tools and skills and insight of chemistry to understand biological systems. And so how that how that applies to things like roommate questions and, you know, roommate conflict and so on, I'm not entirely sure, but I think we'll just have to figure it out as we go. I think this is one
0: aspect, too, where we can sort of reach back to the Victorian tradition of like the gentleman scholar. So like a (laughs) Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where it's sort of like, well, I'm an amateur tinkerer with potions. And then I think about how that affects the human soul. And um I'm sure in other ways we would like to, to move past uh, Victorian scientific ideals, but a- at least in, um, in outlook, that might be useful.
1: Yeah, we can uh, we can take what works for us and leave everything else in the past.
0: Beautiful. I love that. All right. So I will read our first letter. It's a little bit long. I'll try to cut it down more than I already have. The subject is roommates, not live in help. I live in a shared apartment with three other people. I've lived here the longest, and I always tell new housemates that I usually keep to myself. I work from home, and I also have disabling migraines. Sometimes I am so photosensitive that I can't even stand to have a computer on in my bedroom. When this happens, I need to take my meds and lay in total dark and complete silence. One of my roommates, who also works from home, was recently in a car accident. He broke his leg and spent some time in a rehab hospital with his very supportive mother, Now he's back, and the rest of us try to be helpful, but it's difficult. Especially when he didn't mention any of his needs up front, just sent an angry message to our group chat when someone put the rug down in the bathroom. If he realizes someone else is in the shared bathroom, he'll make loud, angry noises that often travel through the walls. He's taken to loudly shouting for me to retrieve things for him. He does not say please. I've told him that yelling is not a good way to get my attention, that he can call my phone if he needs me, but that I can only help out in an emergency. Wanting napkins at one in the morning, two nights in a row, is not an emergency. I have taken to ignoring the messages that he sends to the roommate group chat that I keep muted. This makes me feel mean. Today, he interrupted my workday yet again to walk something down the hallway to him. I was short as I reminded him that I'm at work and can't hear him all the time when he yells, which is something I do feel bad about, but he still didn't even thank me. Saying, I'm sorry, after every demand, doesn't make it any easier for me to suddenly have a caretaking responsibility I didn't ask for. I know that in the spirit of mutual aid, I should be kind and want to help where I can, but he has a very supportive mom he could be staying with. His best friend lives with us. Is there a polite way to decline these responsibilities? I'm at a loss for how I can possibly proceed in this situation without being a total monster. Please help. I think the good news is there's, there's a number of ways to proceed without being a total monster. And, you absolutely. know, not to get too Pollyanna-ish, but possibly even without calling your roommate a monster. He sounds difficult to be sure, but I, I think there's many ways through this that don't require anyone to be a monster. Does that strike
1: you as like roughly uh, on course? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, they make the distinction in this letter between politeness and kindness. Which I think is uh, is important, and um, yeah, no, I think there are absolutely ways to handle this without painting anyone involved as a monster. Like I have a lot of sympathy for the letter writer. I also have a lot of sympathy for the uh, for the roommate who's broken his legs and is handling it in a way that is challenging, but um, because it's a challenging situation. Yeah, yeah, and you know,
0: it's possible for curmudgeonly people to to need help as well. And it's also you know, I I don't want to go too far in either direction of saying, you know, you should only be able to expect some help with like physical limitations. If you're a really nice person and you always say things in like the friendliest way possible Uh, or on, on, on the flip side, sort of, it doesn't matter how somebody else treats you if they have a physical need and you can help them with it. You know, you are obligated until the end of time to perform whatever task they want you to. So I think where I would like to start is Actually, towards the end, the letter writer says, I know in the spirit of mutual aid, I should be kind and want to help where I can. And I think it might be helpful to uh, think about what kind of relationship you and your housemates actually have. Um, mutual aid is is a an interesting uh, activity, organization, <laughs> organizing principle with like a, a sort of fascinating history. But it, it almost feels here like it's being used as a shorthand for like Being a good person, or Mm -hmm. um, you know, to me it seems a little bit at odds with. I have housemates who, when they move in with me, I tell them I'm usually not very available. That doesn't sound to me like a community where mutual aid is an organizing principle, where you routinely kind of go out of your way to live in like a, a shared sense of like lifelong responsibilities or 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 aid. It's they're your housemates. You have some things you have to all do together because you share a house together. But beyond that, there's not necessarily a strong relationship. So I'm I'm wondering whether or not we can remove the lens of mutual aid entirely.
1: Yeah, I mean, mutual aid strikes me as something that is an active undertaking rather than something that is sort of imposed upon you, which is how I see this happening. You know, obviously, roommate did not want to... uh Undergo this, you know, obviously very challenging injury, but um, similarly, this is not something that letter writer has signed up for, nor—and it is important for them, to, I think, to understand what their obligations are and are not in this situation, and to, uh, to get on the same page with the roommate about those.
0: Right. At the risk of sounding flippant, mutual aid, the first word is mutual. It is not— <laughs> Uh, volunteer work. It is not the same thing as charity. It is not you know do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's not an ethical principle. Um, it's it's a way of organizing. Yeah. Um, and it seems pretty straightforward that you and this particular roommate, perhaps you and all of your housemates, have not organized together in this way. So, letter writer, if it is at all helpful to think like I'm not violating the principles of mutual aid if I decide to set some new limits with my roommate, um, are you a I, monster? Yeah. Yeah, so I I think that that will be a helpful place to start, which is simply mutual aid is not a question here. The question here is, you know, my housemate is in, you know, some degree of pain, is involved in some degree of like ongoing recovery. I don't know what kind of break this was or whether there were additional sort of lingering side effects from the car accident. I, I can imagine it could potentially be like a quite arduous and difficult process. I don't want to assume it's just like super clean, simple break and he's going to be like up on his feet again in six weeks. But um, again, the question is not, does this guy deserve help and support? Is it okay for him to sometimes experience frustration? All of that seems to me self-evidently true. The question is just, I have told this guy before, I don't want him to yell for me, and I'm not always available to help him with like basic everyday tasks and that he needs to look elsewhere. So far, he is being, let's say, at best inconsistent about um, you know abiding by that commitment that I have made clear to him and so now how do I escalate without saying you know you're a horrible asshole who deserves to be you know suffering um and also without feeling so guilty that I don't
1: make myself really clear Mm -hmm. I think one of the one of the problems that I see going on here and I think this is you know fundamental to a lot of these kinds of conflicts is that this is something that's happening you know, th- these these discussions about boundaries that the that letter writer is trying to have are are happening ad hoc reactively as a, you know, a series of, you know, small conversations in response to incidents. And I um, the strongest reaction that I had was I really want to tell this person to um, just to sit down with the roommate and and say, you know, let's talk about what your needs are, what I might be able to help with, and what is and is not a productive way to to talk about them and to accept that, you know, that there are some contexts and some ways of helping that will not be accessible to letter writer and that that's okay. And that it sounds like a little bit more structure in how the roommate is able to ask for this kind of help would be beneficial to everyone involved. It would help the roommate get the help that they need and would help letter writer to not feel taken for granted.
0: Yeah. And, you know, to that end, I think I would even add on to the two of them should sit down, which I totally agree. Have a house meeting. This is like a good old fashioned case for a house meeting. And I I can appreciate why you might not want to call a house meeting in the spirit of like he's in trouble and I'm here to yell so or or he should he should have called a house meeting when he first came home and now I'm doing his dirty work so much it's just like there's a problem or a series of problems that we need to address as a group and we should all get together and talk about it I, I realized that You know, sometimes it's difficult to get all the members of the household together at the same time when everyone's like available to have a a conversation. But I think there's an advantage to doing it in person, if at all possible, over the group chat, just because there's a lot of ways things can go sideways pretty quickly in a group text that are sometimes a little easier to corral in person. So I would say have the group meeting um, and really just let a writer speak on your own behalf. Um, I, I can appreciate why you feel kind of concerned about. Part of me wants to suggest he could move in with his mom. Part of me wants to suggest, ask more of his friend. That's really his business. So your job, I think really is just like in this conversation with ideally most of your housemates um, for you to just say, here's what I'm available for, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and really think ahead in advance letter writer, not like give a sort of version that you think your roommate wants to hear and hope he asks for less. Like be really straightforward. If it's like once a week, I can run an errand for you and I need you to stop yelling That's it. That's what you say. And then let him and the other housemates figure out other workarounds. That's not um, inappropriate. That's not um, unkind. That's not rude. That's not monstrous. That is useful and straightforward. It might be a a little disappointing if he wants more. But part of the project, I think, of being alive is is realizing that you will often disappoint people. And that's not always the same thing as harming them or um, genuinely letting someone down and and, like betraying your own values does that make sense
1: yeah absolutely and i mean i think one of the things that the letter writer seems very concerned with is being kind and i am firmly of the belief that understanding your limitations and setting good boundaries is a kind thing to do for other people that you have relationships of any kind with uh and that's really what this would be
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, beyond that, there's that sort of question of, like, he doesn't say please or thank you. He's just, like, both sort of angry and apologizing, which is, I, I realize, like, a really unpleasant combination when someone's both sort of, like, self-pitying or self-denigrating and clearly pissed off. mm mm-hmm. um, I'm less worried about that. I, I feel like if you're clear about what you're not available to do and, and make it really clear to your roommate that he needs to stop shouting for you or asking you for help with non-emergency things in the middle of your workday or in the middle of the night, then the, the stuff about saying please or thank you will feel a little easier to just like put to the side. I, I also think it's fine if he doesn't say please or thank you ever to say like, I'd really appreciate it if you said please or thank you when you asked me for something. Beyond that, if he then doesn't do it, I think it would be kind of a waste of your time and energy to keep pushing for it. I I would just chalk it up to he's kind of rude. We're probably not going to live together forever. We're certainly not going to be best friends.
1: That is another thing that that I thought about is how long is left on this lease? How long do you expect to continue living together? You know, is it realistic to expect anyone involved to change their living situation in the near future? I don't know what the you know, limitations are there, but that might be, you know, figuring out the finiteness of this situation, both in terms of how long is he expected to be less mobile than he was before and how long are you expecting to all live together. That may also frame how you need to think about and talk about this situation.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think. Honestly, I believe that some of the yelling might be what's contributing to this letter writer's fear of feeling like a monster. In addition to what I imagine is already some possibly just like misplaced guilt about not doing everything that they can. Mm. You know, because the letter writer says um, he interrupted my workday to get me to walk him something. And then I was short with him when I reminded him that I'm at work and can't hear him all the time when he yells. And then I felt bad about that. And that to me suggests like that's actually a very – normal, reasonable, polite thing to say, Um, none, nothing, I mean, I understand why you, you know, you might want always to be able to do everything, and so you just feel bad about not, you know, having 50 hands or or infinite time and energy, but that's not bad, and so if if some of this is just, he yells a lot and he's pissed off a lot, and that makes me feel like I'm a jerk because he's so, you know, angry and volatile, you know, again, I, I, I don't know that I have great advice for that beyond just like he is that is misdirected anger and you are not a bad person just because he is being irritable. But I'm also aware that it's not always easy to just like dismiss such a reaction.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I don't know what he was like before he got this injury, but it's to me that definitely reads as this is a frustrating situation. You know, it's not like he can sit around being angry at the, the person who the other person driving the car or, you know, that person is not there Mm -hmm. for him to express his anger toward. And you know, you just happen to be there in the frustrating situation with him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But but just as, as, as I see it, as it boils down, you know, is there a polite way to decline caretaking responsibilities? Yes. The things yeah. that you have laid out here are polite and reasonable. And if you have that house meeting or if that's not possible, just a brief conversation where you just are like, I, I can't interrupt my workday. Um, I'm often like on calls or on my headphones and I can't hear you when you yell. Uh, by the way, when I'm off work and you yell. That's not good. Don't do that. Don't yell at me. Super reasonable request. Super polite. If he reacts angrily, I'm sorry. But I would just really urge you to remember that's not because you have done something wrong or unkind or unhelpful and that he does have other options besides you.
1: Nor would that mean you're obligated to, you know, drop everything and devote your whole life to taking care of this person.
0: Yeah. So I I think that's kind of it in terms of general principles from from me um again you know it's always i think nice to remember that you know when you do have the time and the energy to help him with something to be able to do it without worrying too much about is he going to be you know nice or uh, sort of crusty is he going to be grateful or indifferent you know let go of kind of concerns about trying to change his emotional outlook and just say like if i can do it i will it's done and that is i think a, a usually a helpful attitude but yeah beyond that um you you are being polite by letting him know what you can and can't do, um, and you shouldn't shout when you have a roommate who you know gets debilitating migraines. That's
1: bad. Yeah, that's also kind is to not do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that I you you can also ask something of him, like I need this from you. Um, I am also dealing with like an ongoing painful physical condition, and uh, that that also is important to to accommodate.
2: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
0: I think this is a, a useful moment to move into our uh, next question, which feels like it's coming from a really similar place as, as mm-hmm. the first letter writer. So I'm interested to think about this sort of question more broadly. Would you read it?
1: Absolutely. The subject of this letter is want to be useful. I live in a big, progressive-leaning city. I like it here, but I feel like I'm not contributing to my community in meaningful ways. How do I do that? My job is steady and pays pretty well, but I feel like the skills I use at work aren't particularly useful. So I want to volunteer outside of work. I'm pretty good at teaching, tutoring, computer stuff, and organizing information. I love a spreadsheet. But I don't know how to translate those into meaningful contributions to local organizations. I really want to do care work such as cleaning, cooking, and child care, but I don't feel like I'm very good at those things. I like learning new things, so I'd be eager to learn something that will help me to be useful. I especially want to contribute tangible skills like gardening, repairs, first aid, and so on. I make recurring contributions to a couple of local organizations. My local mutual aid group is in a pretty good place financially, so most of the requests are for rides and grocery deliveries, but I don't drive, so I can't help with that. Of course, this is all more complicated because of the pandemic but i want to do more or at least be ready to do more once things open up more where do i start do i contact organizations start learning new skills
0: i mean great questions yeah um i i i sort of wished i could get a a stronger clearer sense from this letter writer of what their sense of their community is mm-hmm. just because i feel like i'm not meaningfully contributing to my community feels so big and open ended and I, I'm not even sure how you would gauge, okay, I actually do feel like I'm doing enough for my community. That strikes me as the sort of thing that could potentially go on forever. Like, yeah. you could always be a little more helpful. What does meaningful look like for you and who's in your community? Um, does that strike you as a, a useful question? Do you think it would get us off a little too far into the weeds?
1: No, I mean, I think that is useful. I, you know, the, what, what popped into my head reading this one is that the world is always going to be bigger than you. And um, understanding what are the bounds on the contributions you can make to the world and to your community will help you understand better whether, whether you are, are making what you consider to be a meaningful contribution. Because in order to understand if you're meaningfully contributing to your community, as you say, you need to understand what your community looks like. I also was noting here, I felt like there were some things that this person might want to do because they would find them personally rewarding, and there were some things that they might want to do because they would find meaning in providing those services to other organizations. Mm -hmm. And so I I feel like part of the advice that I would give is is to think a little bit about what you want to get out of this service? Um, mm-hmm. Is it? Do you think you would find gardening repairs for state and so on rewarding just by virtue of doing them? Um, versus, you know, things like cleaning, cooking, and childcare are those things that you see uh, a need that needs to be filled. I mean, I think I think these are the questions that that the writer is is coming to us with. So I don't know. Uh, how much it helps to reframe them that way. But
0: yeah, I, I think that that's definitely a useful place to start, not least because I think since especially a lot of this is being framed as like potential either volunteer work or unpaid work with organizations, it is, I think, important to separate out, um, you know, what is a meaningful contribution look like to a local organization versus what does a meaningful contribution look like for you? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the sort of perennial problems with uh, like a volunteer force is that often there's a sort of not always spoken or acknowledged element of the reason I am doing this volunteer work for no money is because I expect to get some sort of intangible sense of value or self-worth out of it, and often that translates into you know, an organization might say, great, we actually need a lot of kind of fiddly dull spreadsheet work done. And a lot of people might say, great, sign me up. And then, you know, after a few weeks or a few months, they're like, well, this is boring and I don't have to do this. And I don't feel as good as if I were, I don't know, handing a, a flower pot to a baby. Um, and so, I, you know, this doesn't feel meaningful. Um, and so therefore something must be wrong. And, and that's not to say that a writer that like, that's you or that you have created, you know, volunteer dilettante problems or that you're, you know, really just self-interested. I just think it's it's an important known phenomena that that often I think can be addressed better by thinking carefully early on about like. How much of this is like, I want a hobby. How much of this is I want to do something that feels kind of fun and allows me to meet new people. And how much of this is like, here is a cause or an organization that I feel really strongly about and I want to be useful in sometimes like entirely unremarkable ways. Because those are all separate questions and they're all meaningful. Like Mm -hmm. if you wanted to take a first aid class, um, not necessarily because you know immediately how you're going to put that into use, but because you think it would be interesting and kind of fun you should go do that. Um, Same with gardening. Uh, It doesn't all have to be immediately in the service of something else. You can just acknowledge that some of this has to do with wanting to add intangible value to your own life and that's not something you have to apologize for or be ashamed of so it doesn't all have to be funneled through this like this is for the greater good thing Um, and and because I think if you can acknowledge the ways in which some of this might be about like pleasure or entertainment again in like a non-phobic way like oh my god I'm just like you know this frivolous person because I want to hang out in a garden for a while then I think once you can get to a more balanced place about uh, thinking about pleasure and interest, um, you'll, you'll also get a better sense of what you're, what you can do.
1: Yeah. I mean, as, just as you say, I mean, that was very beautifully said, Danny, the adding meaning to your own life is not frivolous, especially in the ways that this letter writer has outlined. And, and I think it's also worth mentioning that if you have an interest in these things like gardening and, and first aid, and you pursue those interests, it is likely that opportunities for using those in your community will be will be able to present themselves right like if you learn to do first aid you're going to encounter more opportunities to apply your first aid skill, right? Whether that's through the edu- through education or just through going through life as somebody that knows how to do first aid and keeping an eye open, right? <laughs> Similarly with repairs, if you learn how to do repairs, all of a sudden everybody who needs uh, something in their house fixed is going to be talking to you. Um, and so in that sense, I think leading with the skills that you have an interest in and a passion for Um, Even if you haven't learned them yet, I think leading with those, I feel like the opportunities will begin to present themselves if you have the skills. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very, very much so. And again, I think that's a a good way to look at this. Some of this also just has to do with you want to feel like you have a pretty well-rounded approach to life. And so again, like gardening is lovely and often useful, um, but it's not necessarily something that you want to start doing or learning more about because you know exactly how it's going to like, quote unquote, pay off for your community. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that's part of where the, um, the value in avowing pleasure for pleasure's sake comes into play because it also means like if i start gardening but i can't find a way within you know six weeks to you know help a family feed their children then it will have been pointless like this does not all have to immediately start quote-unquote paying off if that makes sense beyond that you know i don't know how to translate that into meaningful contributions to local organizations What's the organization? And ask them. They will tell you what is meaningful. They know better than you will
1: what they need. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And again, that's where the question of like, is this about the value you think it'll add to your life versus the value that they believe it will add to their, you know, the work that they do. Those are things that are not necessarily going to always be at odds, but they might sometimes be distinct and they might sometimes come into conflict with one another. So the question there is really. Um, think of the organizations that do work that you think is meaningful. If you can't think of any, ask around, do some research and, and look to see, you know, do they have a volunteer page? Do they have a volunteer screening process? They will let you know what kind of work needs doing. And then you can look and see, do any of my skill sets line up with this? Or, you know, do you just want to write and say, hi, I'm interested in volunteering, you know, five hours a week or, or, or 10 hours a month or whatever number seems, uh, manageable and sustainable to you and say these are the things that I'm pretty good at and these are the things that I'd be willing to learn if you have anybody who's interested in in you know taking on an informal apprentice does it sound like something you can use and then they'll either say yeah come on by for an orientation or nope we're good thanks and then you move on
1: yeah hey, i don't think they'll be upset at you for asking and i do think that there are certain things in this letter that lend themselves more to more specific environments for example cleaning and and cooking if you want to volunteer doing those like you can think about what places those skills are needed where you you might be able to get some on you know some experience doing them and getting better at them if you don't if you don't feel like you're good at them like you know maybe there's a retirement home or an assisted living community or something you know or a hospital or 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 Something that, um, you know, I think that there are places where you could, uh, that would be very grateful to have those skills, even if you're not very good at them. But um, just thinking about where the skills that you have or want to develop would fit in um, is important. Similarly, for teaching, tutoring, computer stuff, like, you know, um, teaching and tutoring happened a lot at schools, I've been told right? Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a place that you can ask. And again, none of these places are going to be upset at you for asking, even if the answer is no, we're all good. I think uh, there's also a decent chance that they might be able to refer you to a different organization. So I think the first inquiry, even if they don't say, oh, thank goodness, we've been looking for somebody exactly like you, is going to give rise to more opportunities for service in that respect as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there may be places that are looking for care workers, but um, actually need to pay them. Or it requires more training than you sort of had anticipated, or it doesn't feel as immediately rewarding as you thought it might. And again, I don't say any of this to assume that this letter writer is coming at this with really unrealistic expectations. I just think, again, oftentimes a common approach to volunteer work is, I feel kind of dissatisfied. I'd like more meaning in my life. I can kind of do these things. I don't have a really strong sense of how good I am at them, but I'd like to, you know, do something and then hearing, well, this is actually like a pretty specialized job that requires more than just the desire to do it. And we actually need either, you know, paid workers or you need to go through a lot of training or, you know, you need to share this workload with a lot of other people. And that can be a little daunting because it feels like, gosh, I just, I mostly wanted to feel good for an hour Mm -hmm. on a Saturday. Um, And I would just say, you know, that is a normal, element of the sort of like disillusionment process that comes whenever you take something from theory or fantasy into reality and is often something that leads to greater rewards and greater solidarity so um don't if if you do encounter that don't necessarily think gosh this means this kind of work isn't for me or um this is a bad thing it it often leads to good things um My last couple of thoughts, I guess, would be, you know, if you know anyone or know of anyone who's good at gardening or repairs or first aid and you want to like, do a Skillshare swap, look out for that. Um, you know, there's lots of informal ways that you can offer friends or colleagues or acquaintances or people in your apartment building, you know, uh, a home-cooked meal if they're interested in such a thing or a little help around the house. You know, there's lots of ways that you can um, funnel things that you're like kind of good at, but not necessarily an expert in into helping people around you really informally. And that's great. And, um, you know, you say your mutual aid mostly gets requests for rides and grocery delivers delivery, which fair. You don't have a car. You can't do that. But are, are, do any of those requests ever come in for a grocery store within walking distance of you or biking mm-hmm. distance? You know, are there ways that you can do that without a car? I don't know how walkable your city is, letter writer. So feel free to dismiss that part if it's if it would mean like a 10 mile walk across town carrying a bunch of grocery bags. But, you know, and, and again, ask, like ask the volunteer coordinators um, or the, you know, dispatch coordinators at your mutual aid network. Um, I don't have a car. But I would love to do more to get involved. Are there any other like database needs that, um, you know, I might not have seen?
1: Yeah. I mean, again, I think the worst that you're going to hear in response is no, but thank you for asking.
0: Yeah, exactly. Nobody's going to be furious, no one's going to kick you out of their organization. And, you know, again, I think just specificity and getting in touch with actual organizations rather than thinking of this in such broad terms as I'd like to do more because that's so difficult to pin down that I think it might not serve you especially well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very well said again.
0: Yeah. And and good luck. Let us know. Please write back. I would love to hear a little bit more about what kind of organizations have piqued your interest and um, what, what kind of, Uh, potential opportunities you might run into and how much time you think you could reasonably dedicate to it. Um, I I hope this didn't sound like too, uh, you know, caustic or too um, big deal. You want to help people like get into the specifics. Like I, I don't at all mean to be dismissive of what is genuinely a lovely desire to search for meaning and connect more with other people and be
1: useful. That's those are all really good things. It is. Yeah, it's a it's a great case study on how the first step to take in any endeavor is the hardest, right?
0: I mean, again, just always moving something from existing primarily in your brain to existing uh, in the real world. It is, uh, yeah, that first step is often the most difficult one, no matter what it's about. Well, that I think is about as much time as we should spend on that question. Uh, I would just love to hear, you know, as as a chemical biologist... How are we doing?
1: <laughs> I mean that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, I work in the antibiotics industry right now. I work in the early stage discovery part of the industry, which means that I'm trying to discover new drug candidates and uh figure out what we want to put into animals in the clinic. And, you know, it's it's a little bit of a We're in kind of a situation where the public awareness about infectious disease is higher than it's been for some time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think people who are paying a lot of attention to this Sort of know that the that there's this coming antibiotic resistance apocalypse, right? This is something that you that you read a lot about, but still, it's uh, it is a um, it's an interesting time to be doing this. It's it is a definitely a situation <laughs> where we feel like we can see the next pandemic coming, and um, you know, not getting the uh, funding and attention that we need. But um, it is very fun and rewarding work that I'm really glad that I get to do. And it is very gratifying to see some attention, again, given to um, science and infectious disease and watching science happen in real time uh, in the in the larger community.
0: Yeah. Do you find that when—I don't know if many people in your field or even just in your particular business use a term like uh, apocalypse often, or if, if so, <laughs> like, is it done lightly? Is it done in a sort of way of, like— acknowledging future uncertainty or is it sort of like, well, we're all uh, kind of expecting uh, for things to go quite pear-shaped quite soon? Like, do you find terminology like that kind of helpful or does it tend to like cause other fears to flare up?
1: I mean, I think that that is the way that it gets reported a lot. And I think that it's one of these things like climate change that that a lot of people have been banging the drum a little bit. Or, you know, as much as they can for, for a long time and um, maybe not getting the attention that they want or, or, or deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we use the term apocalypse a little bit in just behind closed doors, but there is a very real danger of this. Uh, again, I'm not a, um, an epidemiologist, but I have read studies in that say things like, you know, we say the pipeline is, dry, is drying up of new antibiotics in that we are discovering new antibiotics more slowly, and, and antibiotic resistance is continuing to develop. That uh, I saw one study that was commissioned by the UK government, which said by 2050, if things continue at their current rate, uh, antibiotic-resistant infections will claim 30 million lives and cost $100 trillion in healthcare costs by 2050. I wish um, so much,
0: by the way, that there could just be like a journal that just follows up with headlines that start with if trends follow at their current rate. Because yeah. I feel like I see those headlines not infrequently. And uh, th- there's always a part of me that's like, well, what if the they don't? hasn't
1: ended yet. Yeah
0: or, yeah. or just not even like, oh, I'm sure this must be misleading so much as just like, how do we know they'll continue at their current rate? What was the rate five years ago? And I'm just always yeah. like, what's the like, can we please start following up? Because surely we've passed some of those by such and such a year. And I'm just...
1: I'm sure that's true.
0: Tremendously curious.
1: Well, we're seeing uh, seeing uh, a lot of uh, large-scale extinction events now, which, again, is not my field. But that is, uh, <laughs> that is one thing that we've been warned about. But... Uh, part of the, you know, the main reason that I'm in this field is that I want to try and help things not go, uh, not go the way that they're going. Right. So, yeah.
0: And I imagine it's challenging both, you know, with colleagues, with yourself, with the general public, depending on how much of your work reaches the general public is that question of um, if I'm trying to communicate something quite critical or quite serious, is there language that maybe grabs attention in the short scale, but actually might lead to people feeling sort of paradoxically more powerless or more indifferent to outcomes such as like, does apocalypse get a lot of people to pay attention up front and then later sort of feel like, well, the apocalypse is coming. So there's nothing that I can do. Let's just call it a day uh, versus like other ways to try to decrease the initial punchiness of the claim. And then you worry you're underselling it. Um, I don't know. I'm curious. I think when people hear apocalypse, they probably think a lot of different things based on people have really different relationships to the idea of an apocalypse.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and and that's fair. And I think that that is something that is getting a lot of consideration because of COVID. Um, I think scientists and public health officials really try and walk a fine line between this is something for which the danger is hard to overstate versus if you try and accurately say, oh, I think this is going to be an apocalypse. I think this is going to be world changing in its magnitude um it's hard not to sound like you're overstating it right because of the clickbait headlines that as you say you see you see these headlines every day and you say the world hasn't ended yet right
0: or or not even yet yeah, not even to put fault on those headlines so much as just sometimes when people hear something incredibly dire there's like a paradoxical response which is it's already over
1: yeah and, you feel paralyzed
0: yeah and it's just like gosh how do you try to um take that into account and try to prevent it knowing full well that then the other danger is that you will undersell the seriousness of a particular concern.
1: Yeah, I mean I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I knew <laughs> the answer to that. But here we are, right? Um It's
0: not unlike I think in that first letter that question of like how do I do this without becoming a monster? Like mm-hmm. when when the fear becomes either the world will end or it will continue on the way it always has been or I can either be a monster or a kind person. Um, and I realize that this might itself sound like I'm arguing for everything is always the medium thing. Everything is always small scale. I don't mean to, mm-hmm. to do that either, but just that question of like, if something exists on too big or too serious a scale, such that you no longer feel able to make decisions or or take action or, or you know, kind of acknowledge your own ability to take action or have agency, then it can get just really um, messy really quickly.
1: You know, if you think of the most likely outcome in any of these scenarios where where the projections are apocalyptic, the most likely scenario is during my lifetime, the human race is still going to exist, but things are going to be worse, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's what's happened with COVID. That's what's probably going to happen with the um, antibiotic resistance. It's probably what's going to happen with climate change, at least during my lifetime. Again, I'm not a climate scientist. You heard it um,
0: here first, folks. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first. Yeah, don't don't uh don't quote me on that. Uh anybody. But um I think it's true that it's it's in the same category as a lot of large-scale problems right? Like you can acknowledge that they're bad and you can understand that that the way things are going is is not good and yet it can be you can feel paralyzed and you can have a hard time understanding how that affects you personally, right? And I think especially in terms of the antibiotics pipeline, like that is a, um, a lot of it is a funding and policy issue, which is just very opaque at the best of times and mix a bunch of science stuff into it. Like, yeah, it's hard to see how that affects me personally until it does, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And even then, you know, I think a lot of uh, science people have been, very discouraged in the COVID times by seeing how we all think these big issues don't seem like they matter until they affect us personally and we've seen a lot of people personally affected um, not galvanized into action by it
0: yeah or, or uh, galvanized into unusual action or counterproductive action or
1: hostile spiteful action, action. And, yeah
0: well Daniel, uh, thank you so, so much for your help in uh, tackling all these questions about sleepiness and ghosts and apocalypses.
1: <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This was this was a lot of fun, even though I spent most of the time talking about how the world's going to end.
0: I mean, I think that was never in question. It's going to end at <laughs> some point. So there's always just sort of like, well, what's right in front of me and what can I do? Um, and then let the rest handle itself.
1: We can all only do what is within our capabilities.
0: I'm always saying that. I said that just this morning, right before I got into the studio. (laughs) Daniel, thank you so much. Have a fabulous rest of the day.
1: Thanks. You too.
0: and here's a preview of our slate plus episode coming this friday you know in the, in the in the words of uh harry from when harry met sally somewhere between you know 20 minutes and all night that's your problem referring to the question <laughs> of like how long do you stay in bed and talk or cuddle after um you know if you have it sort of like uh, established in advance that you're not going to be spending the night you can bask a little hang out in the afterglow talk for a while If you're into cuddling, you can cuddle. Um, If you're not into cuddling, you don't have to. But so it's not just like immediately you're pulling on your shoes. Because I think a lot of people appreciate then that 15, 20 minutes of like, I still think of you as a person who is interesting and worth getting to know or talking to. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.